Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today it's a very special one. It's a mind I've wanted to uh, pick and and chop things up with for quite a while. He is a longtime coach. Can we say legendary coach at no, this point? No, you cannot. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, now broadcaster. Uh, educating us throughout the throughout the week um, on color games, Stan Van Gundy, coach. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, so we were we were talking a little bit right before we started to record about uh, the evolution of the game. I, I do want to hear your thoughts on how things have changed. You you got in the NBA in the mid '90s, and for my money, um, not only have things changed over the decades, and we've had the spacing and pace and space and three-point boom, but uh, even just some of the tactics in the last few years with offensive ex- uh, offensive ratings exploding has, has been incredible. So I do want to talk about that. But the, the first thing I really wanted to sort of hear your thoughts on are we have the playoffs coming up and you hear this all the time about like playoff basketball is so different than regular season basketball. Some people say playoff basketball is a different sport. Just in your experience, what is the what is the difference between regular season and playoffs? What is what changes from like a, a coaching sca- standpoint, a strategy standpoint, whatever? Um, when you shift from the eighty-two game season to that sixteen-game season, well, I think the main thing that changes is the level of preparation that you're able to do and the level of focus that players can have when they're focused on the same team throughout a series. I mean, you know, in the regular season, look, you're playing four games a week. Um, and a lot of times the only preparation you're really getting is a, is an hour's walkthrough um, with your team and, and players looking at a little bit of film. And then you're on to the next team. But in the playoffs, you've got, you know, a couple of days usually at least before the start of a series to zero in, and then you can continue to zero in as a series goes on. So you're going to know the personnel, number one. I think that's the one thing that players notice their first time through in playoff action is like the defenses are really going to know your strengths and weaknesses. And I think it makes players better over time because I remember Jameer Nelson talking about this. I came to Orlando 2007. They had just played a series in the playoffs, um, been swept. and But he talked about how different it was and how he couldn't get to where he wanted to go, his strengths. And so he had to develop his game based on the way people played him. And, and and so I think that level of focus on personnel is huge. I think you are able to better prepare your team, not only for plan A, but plan B and plan C. So it's not just throwing something against the wall if something doesn't work. You've actually had time to go over what, hey, if we need to go to this, this is what we this is what we want to do. And then I also think you can really delve into matchups that have worked and not worked. You can really go back and, 
and have time to go back and study possession by possession everything that's happened in the regular season and then game one of the playoffs and game two of the series and and on and on and focus on who should play against who and everything else. So the level of detail is just is just far greater and it becomes tougher or easier, you know, depending on you know, you're not tricking anybody, though, I know, at that time of the year. So the players have, have got to be better. You know, Doc Rivers talks about this all the time, and I, I think he's right. Some of the guys who are either really good offensively or really good defensively but struggle at the other end can help you in the regular season. But when it gets playoff time, it gets tough. A, a non-shooter who's – a great defender and an energy guy, you know, he gets played off the floor because you can't get any spacing offensively. And guys who can really shoot the ball, score the ball, but can't guard at all become defensive liabilities and people are going at them all the time. And again, you'll do some of that in the regular season, but it's just not the same level of detail and preparation. And so, you know, every little weakness is going to be magnified. Um, and you need guys who can play at both ends and guys who have the skills to counter what's going on. It's not just, I mean, they make it out as a chess match between coaches, but it's really not. It's really players being able to counter when people take away where they're most comfortable. Do you have do you have something else you can go to? Some guys don't. Hey, a coach isn't going to solve that problem. Okay, so um, there's a lot there. I'm curious, when do you think this idea of sort of playing off or, or focusing on weaknesses on either end? I mean, you talked about having a non-shooter who can't space the floor. In your career, when did that really start to become magnified? It, it seems to me that in the 90s, if you had a non-shooter on the court, it wasn't something that was being hunted as as uh, mercilessly in the postseason, if you will. Well, part of that, Ben, is let's remember now, and I don't remember the exact years, but when I came into the league, the the rules defensively were, were different. And so, you know, we wanted to – what's one of the reasons the post-up game was what it was – we wanted to post somebody up. You could lift everybody else up above the free throw line. You yeah. remember those guys standing out there. We used to call it the parking lot. And so now if you're guarding, you either had to go and aggressively double the ball or you had to stay above. You know, you, you couldn't you couldn't just play halfway and you couldn't go halfway at the ball. You had to go all the way down to the ball you know so those things meant that i could hide a non-shooter a little bit yeah you might double but then i could use him as a cutter but i could start him out at the perimeter like you couldn't drop into his lap and do things like that and so that when the when the rules changed the game changed um and made you put more shooting on the floor 
Yeah, but even so the dates on that, that was around 81, 82 for about 20 years. I think in 2001, 2001, 2002, they got rid of this illegal defense. And you'd see things like, I think we've covered it before, Don Nelson. You know, he'd take his non-shooting centers and he'd say, David Robinson, welcome to being above the free throw line. That's for right. This, yeah, for this entire possession. So um, we'd see that. Do you feel like things started to change in terms of really hyper-focusing on weaknesses in a playoff series after that? I mean, you got to Miami. Uh, you were there for years, but then you took over as head coach shortly thereafter. So is that kind of when it started to change? Well, I, I think it gradually changed like everything, but I think, as you know, Ben, for a long time, I, I think it's certainly through from the late 80s through the 90s and into the early 2000s for sure and, and maybe even longer, um, the defense was ahead of the offense. And part of that was that people were not focused on putting – a lot of shooting on the floor, you know? I mean, not a lot of teams had gotten to that yet. Um, and part of it was the pace of the game. Part of it was the rules and the way they were enforced. I mean, the game was a lot more physical. The hand checking was part of it. Um, and so the defense was way ahead of the offense. And and sports to me, every sport, it all runs in in cycles and and obviously now we're 180 degrees the other way and the offense is way way ahead of the defense um but i think the defense eventually um it'll take more thought and more tinkering but i think the defense will catch up to some degree and also i think the people in charge of the rules try to balance things a little bit. And if it goes too far one way, they'll bring it back a little too. So yeah, the games change from from time to time and, and you've got to be able to adapt. And we would all like to be ahead of the game a little bit, but in reality, most of us aren't smart enough to uh, to be ahead of the game. You just hope not to be too far behind it. If you want to work in basketball, or just deeper your understanding of the NBA, Sports Business Classroom is my number one recommendation. Sports Business Classroom is an immersive program that takes place inside of Summer League in Las Vegas, and you'll get training in scouting, media, the salary cap, and analytics from industry leaders. Past instructors and guests include Commissioner Adam Silver, Mike D'Antoni, Masai Ujiri, Daryl Morey, Mike Breen, and Zach Lowe. Dozens of SBC alum have gone on to work in basketball, including two Thinking Basketball team members. And this year's session runs from July 9th to 15th in Las Vegas. So if you're interested, check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And I have a discount for you. Enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL at sign up and get $300 off. That's sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And for $300 off, enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL. All right. So if, if you're preparing for a series in your experience, and, and feel free to draw on experience, but obviously you don't have to call anyone out. Um, someone, you notice someone starts to target a weakness on your team. Someone says, hey, we're going to exploit the fact that uh, this guy's getting picked on defensively or whatever it may be. We're talking about shooters, non-shooters on the other side of the ball. 
what what do you do as a coach? How does that how does that go? Are you if if you see that in game one, do you then draw on that preparation you were talking about for Plan B or Plan C? Kind of kind of curious if this has ever happened and. What's the real-world adaptation as you go through a series? Oh, it happens all the time. You know, I mean, you you have both ways, both offensively and defensively, where, you know, whether it's a personnel adjustment, a spacing adjustment, but in, in large part, to me, your offensive adjustments tend to be personnel-based because, I, I mean, I remember, and I'm not going to call out names, but... When I was a head coach in 0405 season, um, and it was Shaq's first season with the Heat. And so people always wanted a second defender at Shaq. And, and we had a, a guy who had been a really good energy guy off the bench for us all year. And there was just nowhere we could put him on the floor where his guy wasn't going to be guarding Shaquille, you know, at all times. So it was two against one. I mean, you know, there was nowhere to to put him. Oh, cut him. Well, he's just going to cut into his defender who's standing down there anyway. Well, you know, put him in the strong side corner. Well, then they're going to sit in front of Shaq. I mean, there was just when you get to that level of preparation for the other team, the bottom line is taking a guy who's a non-shooter, there's nowhere to put him when you're trying to get the ball to certain spots on the floor. And so where you have to put him is on the bench. And it's not because you don't respect that player. It's just, look, it's going to get, it's going to get too hard to score. I've had another time actually the season before with the heat, my first go round in the playoffs in 0304, um, we were pretty small. Brian Grant was our starting center. Um, Udonis and Lamar Odom were our were our forwards. Lamar had good size. Udonis not so much. And Udonis was basically our backup center. Keith Askins, who was one of my assistants at the time, called us the itty bitty committee. And so we were just really, really small. And so in our first round against New Orleans, they were, and, and we were small pretty much across the board. Damon Jones was our smarting point guard, not that small, but not, certainly not a Marcus Smart type defensively. Um, you know, Dwayne at the two, Eddie Jones at the three. I mean, we just weren't, you know, Eddie was a decent sized two, but we were playing him at the three. So we just weren't very big, and they were running us down into the post with, you know, Stacey Augman and guys like that. And, you know, running UCLA cuts down there. So in that series, what we ended up doing a lot is trapping on the wings and on the perimeter um, and trying to speed them up a little and take them out of being able to just come down and post up. Now, in the second round against Indiana, we were still really small, Um but with Reggie Miller and, you know, the guys, they had a little bit harder to, you know, just be trapping all over the place. And so what we did there was we made a personnel adjustment. We went bigger and you, we played Malik Allen a lot more than we played Udonis Haslam to get more size in the game. And so 
In one series, it was a scheme adjustment to make up for our size. In another series with the exact same team, it was more of a personnel adjustment. And, and so I think it, it goes both ways. I mean, there's just different things to do. And like I said, no 405, we had a guy who was a good big wing. We couldn't play much because of his, because of his shooting. So you go through those kind of things all the time. And then there's a lot of, a lot of matchup type stuff. I mean, when my brother was coaching in New York and I was an assistant in Miami, and I'm going to forget the exact year because these years run together. I have enough trouble with my head coaching years, but, <laughs> um, you know, we had several of those really hotly contested heat Knicks series. And in one of them, I, I thought the one huge adjustment that my brother made that had a lot to do with them winning a close series was, you know, Clarence Weatherspoon had really become a good bench guy for us. Um, and for people who remember Spoon, an undersized power forward, but he really had great lift, was a very good mid-range turnaround jump shooter, you know, that type of thing. And literally, you can go back and watch that series. Every single time Spoon came into the game, Marcus Camby came into the game for New York and played against Spoon, and his size negated him. And we lost most of Spoon's productivity off the bench. And so, you know, now we had played them during the year, and obviously Jeff had done that some, but again, you're just not focused on that kind of detail going in. When he had the time to focus and going into that series, that was something they decided to do that to me really changed the series in a series that was going to be tight one way or another. You know, that little bit of an edge they got was huge. So there's all kinds of adjustments that may not seem huge to a to a fan watching it, but you don't have to be huge adjustments to make the difference if a series is close. Yeah, I think that series is the 99 series that came down to the Allen Houston shot at the end. No, so. we didn't have Spoon on that team. Um, and, I, and the other reason I remember is we had Spoon in the in the new arena, the 99 series. Allen Houston beat us in the old arena in Miami, he bounced it in. Spoon was uh, a couple years later. Again, I wish I could remember the years, but they I were all to, they were all close though. That's the they were that's all the point. Close. Yeah. And and obviously, I don't remember every adjustment made on both sides. Um, but it was just, you know, defensive-oriented series, and you literally couldn't do anything that the other team didn't know. Like, you might put in something new, you'd run it once or twice, and it'd be, you know, people would be all over it at halftime or by the next game. And by the time you get to game seven or game five, like, you're sort of out of a job. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's a chess match to a point with the coaches, but at the end of the day, the defense is so good. The teams are so well prepared. You need players who are just able to to go out and make plays. Yeah, that's been, that's been my experience trying to break down series by series adjustments from the outside and saying like, oh, you can see this big adjustment from game one to game two. By the time you get to game five, you know, fans are like, where's the big adjustments? And you're like, 
they happened. Now they're just that's they're just exactly playing. right. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Like I remember last year, um, uh, being on social media and you know people criticizing Steve Nash. Oh, I didn't make any adjustments in the Boston series, and I outlined like I don't know ten adjustments that he had made over the four games, like. Because you don't notice the adjustments, number one, doesn't mean they're not happening. And number two, because those adjustments don't end up producing a win, also doesn't mean that they're not happening. Steve Nash, I don't have him in front of me now. I'd have to go back to my social media. But he made several adjustments in that series to try to free up Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving Bottom line, Boston was a better team with great length and got a lot of guys who could defend, and they were just better. Those games were a lot closer than people think. It was a sweep, but it was four pretty close games. Steve made some good adjustments, and they just, they just weren't enough. And it, it's just always frustrated me when I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the adjustments people are making and i'm reading people say oh the guy didn't make any adjustments you know like no he did he did you mentioned in the new orleans series 04 trapping out on the wing is that kind of thing like when you're preparing for a series right is that are you pulling on something that you've done to them or seen happen to them in the regular season is it just the Rolodex of coaching experience that you have where you say, this is a tactic in my toolkit to take this away. How, how do you get to that pregame? Well, I'll tell you what happened in that series. You know, we were a relatively young team and we had Eddie Jones and Brian Grant, but that was Wade's rookie year, Udonis Haslam's rookie year. Lamar had been in the league, I don't know, that was his fourth year maybe. Ray Ralston was getting his first major playing time in the league. Uh, Karan Butler was in his second year. Rasul Butler was in his second year. So we were pretty young. And so we made the decision going into that series. Um, we had talked about the trapping on the wings and things, but we decided not to practice that stuff going into the series. Like we just didn't want a lot of confusion. Um, and so we went in with just our normal game plan, how we wanted to play things. And I mean, we had done different pick and roll things over the years. So it, it, we weren't stuck on one way to play everything, but we stuck with things. What ended up being those first two games, we stuck with things that we had already done during the year. And so there was nothing brand new. We did some new offensive things, but we didn't put in anything brand new defensively going into the series. After game two, um, you know, you know, those first round series or they go like, what, a month and a half? You play like <laughs> once a week. I mean, it's crazy. But after game two, um, then we started talking about, okay, now that we're locked into this other stuff, we're not going to put anything new in offensively at this point. Let's talk about some defense. And we still didn't win any games in New Orleans in that series. And they didn't win any games in Miami. But I do remember, in fact, my brother my brother was friends with Tim Floyd. And I remember Jeff telling me after the fact, 
Tim Floyd had said to him, I think it was after game five, said to my brother, hey, can you ask your brother if there's anything we can run that he won't trap? You know, because we just felt it was our best way to sort of use our quickness against their size. So, yeah, I, I think that if anything, for me anyway, I have been a victim at times, particularly in the regular season, of, of trying to scheme too much. Like you see something and you're sort of programmed by the X's and O's saying this would work. And you try it and then you say, crap, I mean, you know, one hour walkthrough, really? Like, and, and I'm surprised we couldn't go out there and, and execute that. Like, I, I, and, and I think even in the playoffs, Ben, I mean, that's, there's a fine line there, you know, of what do you see and what might work on paper as opposed to what are you giving your players? And the last thing you want is anybody out there anytime, but particularly in a playoff series, being confused, you know. Um, you know, so that's a fine line. And if anything, you know, I've made that error and done too much too many times. How much How much can you give them? Is there is – there I think it of... depends on your group. I, I, I do think, and I say this – um, speaking to coaches all the time, that to me, the most underrated thing about NBA athletes, and my guess would be professional athletes in general, but the most underrated thing about NBA players to me is their level of intelligence. I think people obviously notice the size and athleticism and the skills, um, but the amount of information they're able to take in and apply um, is more than I think most people give them credit for. I, look, I had an ongoing, for the entire time I was a head coach, I had an ongoing disagreement with virtually every assistant <laughs> I ever had and, and every player I ever coached. And I think my brother had a lot of this too, that um, my walkthroughs were too long. And we went over way too many plays. And the argument would be they can only grasp so much. We should be going over five or six things, not 30 plays. They can't, they can't retain all of that. My argument on the other side of it is I know damn well they can't retain anything we don't give them. You know, if, if they never see it, they certainly can't get it and the true you know the the right mix is probably somewhere in between but i do think that i probably have or had as much confidence in players intelligence and ability to process information as anyone like i maybe i overestimated it i don't think so i i think those guys are one of the reasons one of the big reasons they make it and others don't or they become the great ones and the others don't is because of their ability like i remember one time and i don't mean to devolve too much into storytelling here ben i'm sorry but no storytelling is great stan keep going but i remember one time dwight howard was gonna play for Team USA and Mike Fratello gave me a phone call and he said, hey, Stan, I'm out here with Team USA and, um, you know, Coach K and they just wanted me to give you a, 
a call. I think it was Coach K's time. It had to be when Dwight was there. Yeah, and he said, um, you know, what can we do with Dwight in terms of pick and roll defense? And I remember saying to him, I said, Mike, you can do anything you want. He'll, there's not a pick and roll defense he can't execute. And if you want to change it at a timeout, he'll have no problem with that. And if you want to play one guy a certain way on pick and rolls and a second guy a second way and a third guy a third way, he can do all of that too. You know, like literally he's that smart and can do whatever you want. And so he won three straight Defensive Player of the Year awards. And I think people, what people saw was that body and that quickness and that shot blocking, certainly all necessities for what he did. But what really took him to the next level was his level of intelligence. We had to ask him, the way we used to go over personnel at the time in the regular season is after our walkthrough, which players say was like two hours, which it was not. But <laughs> after our walkthrough in the locker room, they would divide up by groups, the bigs, the wings, the guards, and talk about personnel. It wasn't quite as much switching then, so you could sort of do it group by group. And we had to stop letting Dwight answer about players because he could not only talk about every player, you know, forwards and centers on the other team, he could literally mimic, you know, their go-to moves. And the problem was then we never knew if Ryan Anderson or Brandon Bass right. or Glenn Davis knew those players because Dwight was given all the answers. So we had to ask him to just, we know you know, all right? Let's let these guys answer first and then you can help correct them. He was that smart and that's, one of the reasons he had the success he had, particularly on the defensive end, and we had the success we had. Are you interested in making a podcast? Because Spotify has a platform that lets you easily record one, distribute it, and even earn money all in one place and for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, where you can record and edit your podcast right on your phone or computer, then distribute your podcast to Spotify and anywhere else podcasts are heard. They also have video podcasts, which is really cool. And you can interact with your audience, which I love, using things like Q&As and polling them about an episode. Check it out by downloading the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Uh, let's let's talk about some of those most famous series with him. I've had a, a bunch of people, especially our Thinking Basketball Discord, reach out and say, you have to ask Stan about the 2009 Cavs series, the game plan against LeBron. What was it? How do you do it? Did it, did it work? Can you, you know, what's it like to try to game plan against him and then in that specific series uh, sort of talk us through what, what you ended up seeing as the series went on. You guys won the series, but of course his individual numbers in that series were, uh, I think historically, there, there's literally aren't many series that have ever had uh, numbers like he put up in that series. So a really fascinating kind of series to look back on. Yeah, he had the best series he's ever had in his um in his career. And the interesting thing is, 
over the course of his career, like his regular season games, he actually scored against my teams a little bit below yeah. his career average. Yeah, I should let me let me interject really quickly. Um, you guys played them very well in 2009 and even in 2008, the year before. And so he had, he had a couple big scoring games, but there's a ton of like six of 23, 19 points. So that's, that's just want to put that background in there. So, so continue. Yeah. Well, here's, I mean, the biggest factor in that series is our, my first year there, 07, 08, and then 08, 09. Um, I, I, I mean, I think you could actually say we had pretty well dominated them in the regular season we had even gone over and um played them in two exhibition games in china um and i remember i put my starters back in to win one of those and got criticized for that but i just felt like hey this is somebody we're going to be competing with and i want my guys to win against them and and our guys had great confidence but the game plan going into 0809 into that series was we're going to play him one-on-one -on -one as much as humanly possible. We're going to, you know, make him more of a scorer than a passer. He didn't have a ton around him. I mean, that team won 66 games. And if you look at that roster, I mean, it tells you how good he was. Mo Williams was his second best player. Um, and Mo played pretty well against us in the series. But... That was the thing. We're not gonna. We're gonna try to not let him make these other guys look great. Now, the one part of this that we could not execute at all in that series is a big part of our plan was, hey, look, he's gonna have to make a lot of jump shots. We're gonna bring help on drives, but we don't want to foul him. Well, he shot ninety-four free throws in six games, you know, so. We didn't take care of that very well. But if you look, really, Mo Williams was the only other guy who even had a decent series against us, and it just wasn't enough. Now, we prepared every single game, so six games, before every single one of those games, we prepared to adjust and come with double teams and to come from different spots on double teams and to what we call box against his wing isolations, just bring the big over early, bring Dwight over that, early. So that, like, that pre-rotation yeah. flood the side concept. Exactly yep. right. People call it tilting their defense. What are we? Every single game we went over all this. By the end of it, our players were like, come on, man. Like, we haven't done this the whole series. Like, what are we doing? But we were ready, you know, for one of those 60 or 70 point nights where where we had to come do that. Um, but as it was, like, even though he was great defensively against their team in the series, our defense was was good and if not for his big time three-pointer that is still played every year to my uh, dismay on you know all the coverage of the playoffs we would have swept that series i mean you know like we played timely offense and our guys we did what we wanted to do defensively I, i'm not saying we wanted him to get 39 a game we didn't and we certainly didn't want to send him to the line 15 times a game um but overall, our defense was good. And, and look, I don't care how you play, somebody's going to score. 
I mean, I, I had an assistant at the time. He's in Charlotte now as a head coach, Steve Clifford, who we would sit in meetings. And I had a great staff, Steve Clifford, Bob Byer, who's now with Steve in Charlotte, Patrick Ewing and Brendan Malone. And we would sit in meetings and when they'd go over game plan, you know, they'd say, all right, well, you on a pick and roll, let's say, well, we can blitz it. Ah, I'd say, I don't, I don't want to open up that, that roll man. Okay. Well, we could switch it. Ah, I'm going <laughs> to give up too much size on the boards, you know? Well, we could play in drop coverage, which we didn't really use at that time very much. Um, we could play in drop. Ah, now the, the guards just coming off. I mean, I would have an answer to, to every coverage. And then finally, Steve would look at me and go, well, look, we're not going to be able to keep them from getting a shot. Okay. So we're going to have to give up something. Now, what is it you want to give up? And he would always bring me back to reality with that. Um, and so that going into the Cleveland series, our thing was, we thought that Turkaloo, Richard Lewis, Pietris, you know, guys like that had enough size that we could play on him and play him with a little bit of a cushion, make him take some jump shots and, you know, make it tough on him. And we didn't really, but the game plan still ended up working because we did limit everybody else. But LeBron was absolutely phenomenal in, uh, in that series. So how is that different compared to the next round where you have Kobe, who is another wing that can score and pass, but maybe this is a more balanced offensive team, Pau Gasol, low post, high post passer, Lamar Odom, who you coached, you know, like a, he's a big guy that can attack you from the outside. He can play make, um, obviously the triangle, right? With, with Phil Jackson there, what, you have the Cleveland series, then you go to the finals. Um, what changes there? Like, how, how did you try to tackle that beast? Well, the thing is, is, is we, we wanted to, again, we got, you know, Courtney Lee back starting. He had broken his, I don't know, occipital, but whatever it is under your eye in the, in the Philly series in round one. We didn't have him at all against Boston came back late in the Cleveland series, and we put him back in the starting lineup. And again, between he and Beatrice, we tried to guard Kobe one-on-one. If you look at that series, we had good success against their starting lineup, Bynum and Gasol in there together with Kobe. Their spacing was made things a little bit easier. We could get help to Kobe a little bit easier. Um, where we struggled, and to me, to this day, like when I look at that series, I mean, Kobe Bryant's great, great, great. You know that. It's a given. I'm not taking anything away from him, believe me. Um, They wouldn't have won that series without Kobe Bryant. Hell, they wouldn't have been there without Kobe Bryant. But the key to that series was Lamar Odom because when he came off the bench, first of all, they got a lot better defensively. Like, you know, we're playing Richard Lewis at the four and Turkaloo at the three. So one of those bigs has to guard one of our forwards in the starting lineup, and they couldn't. I mean, they just couldn't get out on the floor and guard those guys. It was Pau Gasol. He's trying to get out on Richard Lewis. It was a little bit easier for us um, to be able to compact the defense with those two bigs. And then when they would bring Lamar in, well, Lamar could guard our forwards. He and 
meta world peace, you know, it, it gets now they're defensively really, really good and their spacing and ball movement just just gets a whole lot better. Um, and so that was the key to the thing. And, and so we worked a lot on trying to get to Kobe on double teams. We could do it when he was down in the post. Um, you know, we could do that with some level of effectiveness, but we tried a few times to get to him when he catches it on the uh, elbow when they ran their reverse action. Uh, you know, Phil would be over there rubbing his knuckles, and that was a big fourth quarter thing with them, and we, and we struggled when they went to that. Um, you know, it's hard to double people in the middle of the floor, and and uh, and that was a struggle for us. I, I You know, I've only gone back and watched that series once. Um, it's not my favorite memory. Um, but I didn't think our defense was that bad on him. And I think a lot of people would probably say that about defending a lot of great players. Um, you know, hit a lot of jump shots over the top of us. And, you know, it was his greatness. But but our, our plan was similar, though we did want to double Kobe more when he got it, when they, you know, put him down in that mid-post mid post area. Um, you mentioned... Hito and Richard Lewis, Hito Turgaloo, you use them, uh, you know, here are guys going back to Sacramento that are big, big playmakers, right? And you play either, those are your forwards, they can shoot as well. How much in your mind, um, how much was focused on, hey, three-point shooting is A, a big weapon because of the efficiency of the shot, but B, this idea of spacing and opening up the floor. And then with my bigs specifically, if I can get a stretch big, of course, back in the day, you know, a stretch big was like taking 18 footers instead of instead of shooting threes. Um, but I've always been curious about that. In Miami, you the year before you took over, you were 20th in three-point attempts, the team was. When you get there, you jump to seventh. Same thing in Orlando. You uh, The Magic were 28th the year before you got there. Your first season there, you jumped up to second in the league was that just a coincidence of having that kind of personnel or is that something that philosophically uh you were looking to sort of drive forward and take advantage of yeah a little bit of both i mean i definitely thought you know the the three-point shot was you know one you need look look i, th I think that so my first team we didn't really have bigs like i said brian grant was our was our big, and he was a very good mid-range shooting 6'9", big guy. Um, but we didn't really have a low post game. But in Dwayne Wade, we had, even as a rookie, one of the best attacking players in the league putting the ball on the floor. And so what do you need to do to help him and, and you know i think a very simple concept in coaching is you know the guys you rely on your best players you've got to put them in position like you expect a lot out of them you got to put them into in position where they have a chance to produce at their highest level and so with Dwayne, well with anybody really i mean it means they need space and so trying to space to the to the three-point line. I mean, we had Lamar Odom was our starting four. Brian Grant was our starting center. We played, you know, we actually started Dwayne at the point that year. 
you know, but he played a lot at the at the two with Rafer at the with Rafer at the one. And and so it was to to get the floor spread out so that Dwayne could attack. Now, the next year we get Shaquille. So, you know, you got Shaquille O'Neal, obviously one of the best, if not. Well, certainly in his generation, the, no one caused you to change your defense more than Shaquille O'Neal. I've always said that like you you couldn't play your base defense, whatever that is. I don't care what it is. You could not play it against Shaquille O'Neal. It's not going to work. So you got to have a different game plan. He needed room on the floor. You know, we had Damon Jones as our point guard and Damon by far his best season ever, maybe his only real productive season was that year in Miami because he was a perfect fit for what we needed. You know, he didn't need to create much. We had Dwayne to do that. And we had Shaquille inside. We needed somebody to make shots. And he was a great three-point shooter. I, I remember at one point, I mean, Damon was, you know, he was a little out there and would seek attention and things. And so every time he made a three, he would run back down the court, you know, with his, you know, given the three sign. And I remember Pat Riley one time saying, telling me in the office, you got to get him to, to stop doing that. And I said, really, I'd like him to do it like six or seven times a game, you know, cause only doing it if it goes in. So, you know, I was all for it, but he fit us really well. And then I came to Orlando and we had Dwight Howard, you know, and we had a guy in Jameer Nelson who could break down defenses and get in the paint, shooting around those guys. Then I went to Detroit, I had Drummond, and eventually we had Reggie Jackson, who at, his, at the height of his game could really get down in the paint. So it just sort of all fit together. Spacing, I think, makes sense for every team. I look back now and I'm like, why didn't we shoot more threes? Like by today's standards, like we were a team that didn't shoot any threes in yeah. Orlando, you know. Um, but we did embrace the three and the spacing and and a big part of that i think yeah was philosophical but it wasn't just the three my philosophy my i guess two of my biggest things simplest things coaching philosophy is figure out a way to get your best guys on the floor as much as possible that sounds easy but then you know when i came to orlando the league was pretty conventional you know power forwards were big we got Richard Lewis and Hito Turkaloo, two of the better small forwards in the league. How, how are we going to do this? We got to get them on the floor. Like playing one of them 18, 20 minutes a game so we could give more minutes to somebody at the power forward spot who's not as good didn't make any sense. So that theory of getting your best players on the floor as much as possible and then building your offense around your best players and making sure you're doing everything you possibly can to maximize their ability to produce. You know, th those, were, those were my philosophical things. Then specifically what we did was based on the personnel that we had, you know, because our, our best offensive players were not Ray Allen types, okay? They were not runoff screen so, so the way doc rivers maximized ray allen is kevin garnett and 
Kendrick Perkins were two of the best and most illegal screeners in the history of the league. We knew it was coming, yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> so they just nailed you and got, well, that, that's not, that wasn't us. And so I think, you know, you take that thing, here are my best players. They're Dwayne Wade, they're Jameer Nelson, they're Reggie Jackson, they're Shaquille O'Neal, they're Dwight Howard, they're Andre Drummond, and so now we're going to maximize them. How do we do that? We've got to get shooting around them. Um, and then hopefully some other things. I mean, you know, with Hito, you get obviously a secondary ball handler who's not really even secondary. I mean, sort of co-number one ball handlers with he and with he and Jameer, things like that. So, you know, you just try to build around your best guys. You, you said something recently that jumped out to me. You said playbooks used to be huge. The playbooks used to be huge. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? The X's and O's now are, are they more about what you'd call read and react and flow sets and concepts versus like, you know, I don't know if the, the fans have this conception of the coach yelling out the you know, run four down from the sideline or whatever. Can you can you speak to the changes in your career that you've seen um, when, you, when you say something like that? Yeah, I, I mean, the biggest thing to me is what's really changed is the number of times in a game that the coach will call a set, right? And so when I first came into the league, probably until Mike D'Antoni... You know, I may be leaving somebody out, but um, after every time the opponent scored, you were going to look to the bench and the coach was going to give you a call and you were going to run a set. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a lot of times you're going to call a set. And yeah. because of the other team's preparation, if you're going to call that many sets, you obviously don't want to run the same thing every time down unless it unless I just can't stop it, you're, you're going to change. And so you need more sets. And coaches would build probably pretty elaborate series of plays. You know, you might have your four series and it would all run out of the same set, but, you know, four up, four down, four out, four in, and then wrinkles off of each of those so that things look the same to start but go into different things was – was pretty common now until at least late in the game where some coaches may still slow it down a little bit more but for most of the game coaches are only calling sets on dead balls free throw situations dead balls and certainly always out of timeouts between quarters things like that but missed shots turnovers Almost never has anybody called plays on that. Um, occasionally, as the game goes on, you know, coaches will put on the brakes and call plays, and they used to do it maybe a little bit more. But for the most part, people let guys go in those. But there's very few times now on a made shot that you will see coaches given a signal. It's more in what whatever people will call their flow game and as you just said, read and react. And, and to be honest, um, I laughingly say sometimes, but it's not far from the truth, that we only have two offenses in the game. We have the five-out offense with the center at the top, and we either play through him or he staggers away. 
but he's going to start at the top of the key. We have that offense for 29 teams. And then we have Golden State, who starts looking the same way, but does some different things. So those are the two offenses we have. But literally, if you go into training camp and decide how you want to defend staggers, double drags at the top, and how you want to defend pin downs into handoffs. But, if, I mean, cover that in your three weeks of training camp, and you've got 80% of what you're going to guard covered. And then you can deal with the, um, with the sets that you might see out of timeouts and things like that. I, I remember my first time in the league, and, you know, there were no electronic diagrams. At least we didn't have them at that point. I remember... Tony Fiorentino and I manually drawing diagrams and cutting them, pasting and copying pages to do Pat Riley's playbook. And it was, I don't know, 300 and some pages. You know, I could do an entire NBA playbook right now and it would be maybe a third of that size. You know, what you'll see and what I wonder sometimes, Ben, is you will see every coach in this league will run great stuff coming out of timeouts. You'll be like, whoa. And you'll be like, they couldn't just put a play call on that and run it a couple more times during the game? You know, I mean, it it works so well. It's so hard to guard. You know, why not do it more? But, you know, it, it, it's everybody. And, and look, we all steal from other people. And it is such a homogeneous league now from an offensive standpoint that, Sometimes, quite honestly, like I sort of long to see somebody doing something different. Like, you know, for for a long time, I mean, it was pretty commonplace to see bigs, misses or makes, run to the rim. You know, first big down the floor to the rim, post up on the strong side. And then whatever action you went into and some people would get into flex type action and some shuffle cuts and you know, maybe swing it and stagger away, whatever. But you'd have that rim running big. God, if you see one rim run a game now, and it'll be on a missed shot, it'll be a Nick Claxton or somebody like that, you know, um, but it's in an unstructured situation. On a made shot? No, because the whole idea is we're going to keep the middle opened up. We're not running anybody. I mean, even Joel Embiid doesn't run to the post on – made buckets are going to reverse through him and then doc has different ways to get him down into the post same with Jokic, but they're not rim running to get down there i mean we just don't see it and that was a staple when i came into the league for about mm, i don't know i mean we were still using it as a staple when when i was in orlando so for god the first decades yeah 17 years i was in the league that's what you did, and now you don't do it. But, okay, I want to go back to something you just said about if you see a special, there's a, there's a play that's called from the side sideline, it's a pre-diagram play, and we watch the play, and the play works really well, and you go, that's really hard to guard. I feel like to some degree, those are the actions, as long as they're not too complex, I think those are the actions that have taken over these double screen at the top. And you've said it multiple times here, stagger away two screens away on the weak side. And you get the guy that can, he can curl up off the, you can use both of them. He can cut back door. You can twirl the screen, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Like these actions last season at the beginning of the season 
we had a video that I want to say was just focused on pick and roll up top. And then you had a baseline exit screen clearing the lane. So you had a cutter running along the baseline, pulling the defender out, creating that shooting option. The Warriors will send Steph Curry on the baseline. Then you get that classic gravity where two defenders jump to the shooter. And I think the Hornets used to run it. Jay Chirano, of course, is is now uh, in Sacramento. And they have a lot of these concepts. But it's like, you fast forward one year, Stan, and now the whole league runs that play, right? So I don't know if you have... college teams. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you turn on NCAA. You know, I was watching the tournament last night, and I was like, okay, here are the we got a we got a Chicago or you know you get the big man at the top, and you set the pin down, and you look for the handoff. So on one hand, I feel like sometimes it's these it's these specific play calls that are amenable to fitting in. Hey, this is our spacing. This is our five out. This is our personnel. We're all going to copy and run these. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but the other thing I wanted to connect that to is, man, it feels like in the last couple seasons, especially, that there's just more and more sets that are harder to defend as you get more shooters on the court, more skilled ball handlers and decision makers. Like everybody knows how to make all these passes now when they come off a screen or a handoff. When when the low guy comes over and tags, I'm going to skip it. You know, my shooter's going to lift out of the corner. It feels like as players have learned this as teams have learned this it's become harder and harder to defend offensive rating is at an all-time high where are you when you watch the games in terms of like hey this is this is the officiating making it easier versus you said it at the beginning like offenses are now maybe ahead of defenses just in terms of the way they're using the personnel out on the court with the skill that's out on the court yeah, look, I mean, I, I think, you know, you hit it on the head. I mean, the thing that's changed is the number of skilled players out there. And most of them can shoot the ball, but not everybody even has to be a shooter. Like, I think if you watch Jared Allen or Nick Claxton, it makes your point that the passes these guys could make. Like, you know, I, I remember times like, playing against the great guards where we would say, look, we're going to blitz this guy and get the ball out of his hands. And I'll take my chances four on three with the big trying to, you know, trying to make plays against the, against a blitz. He'll make some, but he's going to turn it over. We're going to be okay. Right. Man, that's really hard now. And to me where it started the first time I said, Oh, is was Draymond green. Like, and we got to the point, like, Look, we've got to have somebody on Draymond Green who can switch because he's a great screener. So to say your guy's going to get through every screen on Steph Curry's, hopefully he can get through some, but it's not not realistic. And then we and we can't blitz because when he short rolls behind it, he's just a great decision maker. Four on threes, they're going to throw the lob or he's got shooters in each corner and we're in trouble. So now it's everybody. You're absolutely right. Like you you see Yusuf Nurkic making those plays. Like big lumbering guy. He can make those plays. So what do you do? What how do how do you well, so how do you stop I, this? Well, again, I think what everybody's decided to do, right, is 
the blitz is not used very much. I mean, you'll see it late games. You'll see it against teams maybe that lack shooting. You'll see it against the great, great players. Like you'll see it against Lucas some. But, okay, again, it's Dwight Powell. People don't use it as much when it's Christian Wood at the five, you know. So you're not going to see it as much. It, people either go to drops or switches based on who you have. And I think the guards have gotten so good against the drop coverage and, and knowing all their reads and, and just baiting that big guy to have to make a decision that unless you have an exceptional big, like a Brooke Lopez there defending in the drop coverage who's got size and great instincts, it's just tough. Um, and then how many of those can you switch, you know? So I just think there's not a lot of good choices defensively. And so I, I think we need to catch up as coaches defensively in terms of zones and combination defenses and things like that. Now, you have over the years seen things change. Like I have never... I never, when I came in the league, saw anybody do what we would call a scram switch, you know, where, you know, we switch the pick and roll, but now the next biggest guy comes over and we scram the guard out of there. And now it's normal. It's been around for a long time now and everybody's yeah. got it, but that was something new. Um, but I don't even know if that's enough because you're still left with uh, big out there on the ball on a guard and you know people will try to play around with that and when the big start if the big comes up from the baseline to set a pick they'll run a perimeter defender with him so they can switch the pick and roll and keep the guard the big in the back and the big will take the roll man yep. so people have tried you know coaches are trying to figure it out um and like i said i, I have confidence that not that i mean with that much skill on the floor it's going to be an offensive game um but that the defenses will catch up to some degree with things like that. But I think there's going to have to be more of an embrace of zone and combination defense tactics to keep, um, to keep bigs home around the rim. Uh, like if you look at the numbers, right, even just from last year, Ben, offensive rebounding numbers are way up. Well, it's because of all the switching, and I think coaches know that because of that, they've got to, besides what everything else you do schematically against the switches to get people the ball and where you attack, you've got to attack the offensive glass more. And that goes way back. Like when we had Ryan Anderson in New Orleans, people didn't switch as much back then. And he was a, you know, that's when you actually had – Stretch four was sort of a, wow, not even everybody had one of those. Yeah. You know, and so people would switch Ryan Anderson's pick and rolls. Well, Ryan was a great, I mean, had been a great rebounder in college at Cal. And, you know, I mean, and one of the points we made to him then is like, you know, he wasn't really a post-up guy. Like, we're really not going to work to try to get you the ball. We're going to attack the big on the perimeter, and then you've got to kick ass on the glass. And he did that and made people take a tough choice. So you see that happening now. Well, how are you going to combat the offensive rebounding? you got to keep bigger people around the basket. And 
how are you going to keep your bigger people on the floor if they're not switchable defenders, if they're not Rob Williams or Al Horford? How do you keep a rim protector on the floor and around the rim? And, and I just think, you know, I look at Miami's success with their 2-3 zone, which is pretty simple, but Eric's done a great job with it. And people struggle with it. And I'm, I've sort of wondered, the, the main thing I wonder is why I didn't do it more. I really do. Like, I kick myself all the time. I had Boban Marjanovic, who, when I had him in Detroit, was the most efficient offensive player in the history of the league in the minutes he played. And I do. I kick myself. Like, I couldn't come up with some damn way to keep a guy who was that good offensively and tried that hard defensively to keep him on the floor 18 minutes a game every single night. I couldn't do that. That pisses me off at myself. And then I wonder also why other teams look at the success Eric's had with the zone and don't go to it more when we're giving up 115 points per 100 possessions, 118 points per 100 possessions. Like, why are we not seeing a little bit more of that? Why are we not seeing people mix in more box and one and triangle and two like Nick Nurse used to do? Now, he doesn't do it a whole lot anymore. And Steve Kerr did a lot last year, not as much this year, but like specific sets and like we're going to go zone when the ball's in the middle of the floor and maybe when it gets to the wing, we, you know, do different. Like, yep, yep. We've got the smartest coaches in the world, and, and I think eventually they're going to catch up and say, okay, we can't just go out. Look, I'm somebody like a lot of NBA coaches, probably a, a Doc Rivers, a Steve Clifford for sure, um, who – Look, I'm a man-to-man guy. We're going to teach these principles. We're going to work our ass off. We're going to compete hard. We're going to make multiple efforts, and we're going to go out and match up and go, well, that's not working anymore. And that's right. why I, I give Eric Spolster credit for a lot of things. I think he's the best in the game. I'm biased because I work with him, but I think he's the best in the game. Eric was a man-to-man guy, and that's all he taught. And now he plays more zone than anybody in the league. So – we need to catch up as coaches, and that's the one area, coaching area. I think coaches in this league are get better and better and better every year. Um, but that's the one area I don't think as a group that we've caught up with. Well, it feels like a concession sometimes to say, like, you know, if we're not man-to-man, it's because our guys can't contain the ball. Or I've even heard coaches say the players take it as a slight, right? Because if you're, you're a solid you know, slap the floor, bend down, keep your guy in front of you. There's a sense of pride associated with that. We just did a video on essentially peel switching, essentially the idea of, you know, when somebody gets by you peeling off and not having a direct one-to-one switch. Um, I think stuff like that is the future. These I've, I've called them hybrid zones. Just it's the same concept, right? Like you're, you're not going to be able to, keep all five players in front of you anymore. I'll throw it out there. The NBA hates when I do it, so you don't have to do it. But even the way the game is officiated has just made it so much harder, I think, to keep penetrators in front of you. You know, they took away some of the contact years ago on the outside, things like that. So 
Yeah. Um, Golden State, we did a whole video last year as well. I was just fascinated by triangle and two, box and one, the one, two, two, which of course Steve Kerr ran back in Arizona, which is a, a great kind of connection there. But I think all these things to me, along with something you said that I've heard from other coaches behind the scenes, hey, we might have to get to a point where, you know, we like start a possession in man and then there's some trigger that changes the coverage or we go to zone or something because much like what we saw in the NFL and in football, once you know what everyone's doing, if you don't use misdirection, it's too easy to attack. And so I sometimes think about, you know, could could the defense get an advantage by just constantly using misdirection so guys don't come down and see the same coverages? And I feel like in the playoffs a lot too, right? If you're Chris Paul at the end of the series against Jokic, you know, you know exactly what's coming. They're going to run it 10 times in a row. It's going to be the same coverage. And if you don't throw him a different look, first time he's going to get to his spot, second time he's going to get to his spot and up fake and get a foul, third time he's going to get to his f- spot, up fake, hit DeAndre Ayton, and so on and so forth. So I, th- that's what I think uh, sort of has to be the direction probably. No, I, I agree. I, I think it's going to be hybrid-type defenses and coaches are going to have to – scheme differently um and and i think you know again just like with offense i think it's going to be based on what you have personnel wise like i i think the teams like the boston celtics okay fine they can they can get by probably switching a lot of stuff um um but that's not necessarily true for for everybody. Now, I think the other thing that this brings up, though, and the switching has ushered in is that for players, the knowledge of personnel is so much more now. Because, like I said, we used to do our personnel stuff. Okay, the wings and the guards and the bigs, and you know, you'd have four or five guys you'd have to know if you're an individual player. You know, now with all the switching, you, you better know what's going on on everybody. And the one thing I will say that I think could be a lot better on an individual basis throughout the league is I don't think players are doing a good enough job. And, and I, I mean this as a group of players. I'm not singling out certain people. I'm sure there's some who do a better job. But I would say, for the most part, the players in this league now do not do a very good job of taking away other players' strengths. I, I see every game, I'm appalled by the number of strong hand drives that I see by players. The ball just going a right-hander to his right hand to the rim. And you are exactly right, Ben, that it's, the rules and the way the game's officiated and the skill of the players has made it very, very hard to defend one-on-one. I mean, to just go out there and, as you say, slap the floor, now I'm going to D you up and keep you out of the paint. Well, that's not going to happen very easily, which I think makes it even more essential that you've at least got to sit on that strong hand and make somebody go to – their weakness. And again, I said this earlier, that doesn't mean you're going to lock anybody down. 
can you turn a a guy with an effective field goal percentage of 55 into one that's at 50 48 that that's you're going to win the games on the margins i don't think players by and large are doing a very good job of that right now the the one excuse i'll give them is we're switching into a lot of mismatches and switching into you got to know a lot of players on the other team and it does get better in the playoffs and you'll see it because they'll know the personnel better on the other team because they can prepare for eight guys, nine guys, you know. Um, but I think they've just got to be more disciplined in that regard. And if I, you know, if I went back to coaching, that that's something that I would be very demanding on as a coach. Like, all right, I know how hard it is, but damn it, like he can't get to his right hand nine times a game like he's going to have to develop a left hand and he's going to have to finish without fouling and you know all of those things i mean i i think if you look i mean it's an interesting case study with miami i i think it's a defensive concept even though it's still high scoring that people should should really look at ben number one the use of the zone we just talked about but number two people shoot the ball really really well against them like if you look they're in the bottom 10 in threes given up they're in the bottom 10 in opponent three-point percentage they're in the bottom 10 in opponents e field goal percentage and they're in the top 10 defensively in efficiency like how do you do that with people lighting up all their shots well three things they turn you over so you don't get as many shots. they turn you over and they defensive rebound very well. So your number of attempts goes down and then they foul the least of anybody in the league. They don't send you to the line. So they take the highest percentage shot away from you. Okay, those are things, particularly the rebounding and the free throws that we should be able to do a pretty good job of, you know, and be a little bit better defensively. I think part of it is, to be honest, I think a lot of people have just thrown up their hands that, ah, it's impossible to stop these guys and we've just got to outscore them. And and everything's relative. Yeah, we're we're not going to see people. You're not going out there and holding people into the 90s every night, let alone the 80s. But for God's sakes, we don't have to be giving up 120, 125, 130 either. You know, we can defend better than this. Last thought on this, and then I'll let you get out of here. Um, I think you said recently something akin to, I don't like four guys spotted up. Maybe the rotations are too short. Uh, I don't I don't remember the exact quote, but I wrote it down because we did a video on essentially being a shooting threat without shooting. Basically, this idea of cutting, where you position yourself, timing of your cuts, and it seems to me that when we had more of this pace and space three-point boom, especially in the middle of the last decade when the Warriors got going and you started to see three-point shot attempts around the league spike, there was a lot more essentially spotting up. Whereas it feels to me, and you might disagree, I'm interested in your thoughts, last few seasons, one things that one of the things that's changed is, man, a lot more guys are moving. And if we have more players in the league that have a feel for 
timing a back cut or, you know, I'm spotted up, but now I, I move to the other side. I, I drift along the baseline, whatever it is, adding all that movement to me always feels much harder to defend. And I feel like it's the last piece of the pie for this conversation that we're, we're having. Yeah, it, it is a lot harder to defend. I mean, and I think it's, if you look at the Warriors who I think are, you know, instructive, even though, look, they're a mediocre offense. They're 15th in the league offensively. And it goes to a lot of what we were just saying about Miami defensively. I mean, they're the best shooting team in the league or certainly one of the top two or three if you look at three-point percentage and effective field goal percentage and all that. But they shoot the fewest free throws. Um, They don't get any offensive rebounds and they turn the ball over. So they're the reverse of Miami's defense. So they're not a very efficient offense, but they're a great shooting team. And I think going to the point you made with the three being a bigger part of it. So the Warriors lead the league in three pointers made. They lead the league in three point attempts. And I believe they're third in three point percentage somewhere in there. I haven't checked today, but I just had a game of theirs a week ago. They were third in three point percentage and they don't spot up. Hardly at all. I mean, you know, maybe um, a guy will start spotted up in the corner, a DiVincenzo or a Wiggins when he gets back, but those guys will cut if you turn your head all the time. And then the guys who shoot the most threes in the league, Thompson and Curry, they're never spotted up. They are on the move, and it's much, much harder for your defense and in terms of rotations and things like that. And that's another reason, Ben, I think that all the movement, and it's sort of counterintuitive, but some sort of zone or combination defense actually may make it easier to cover the three-point line than chasing those guys around. Um, And we're going to have to come up defensively with a way to play those guys. And especially, I think right now, People aren't as worried about it because the Warriors will turn it over and they won't offensive rebound and they won't get to the line. And so you're looking at them and saying, yeah, we're going to give up some threes, but that's a mediocre offensive team. But in general, just saying if we want to try to limit threes a little bit, everybody says, well, we can't go zone because we're going to give up a lot of threes. And indeed, Miami does, but overall their defensive efficiency is good. Like, I don't think you can center everything defensively on the three, and I don't think you necessarily have to give up the most threes in the league because you're because you're in zone, you know. Um, so well, the the war, but Stan, the Warriors this year, uh, you know, mediocre overall, but a team like Sacramento, right? I mean, they're up at. 120 it's the most efficient we've ever seen and they're borrowing a ton of these concepts you gotta you you have a guy like kevin herter who is essentially a movement shooter and running around um you know the difference between them and golden state concepts similar but golden state's two big guys are not shooters and so what you can do and and i thought ty lu did a really good job um god i'm trying to think was it maybe right before the All-Star break when we were out there um, against the Warriors is he really took them out of that flow stuff because they took the bigs and they just sat them in the lane. And then they played on top 
of everybody else coming to handoffs. Uh, Kenny Atkinson actually is with the Warriors now. He used to do this to us when we tried to run some of that stuff when I was in Detroit. Um, I started coining at the drop and top, drop the big back, play on top of the shooters, not let them come to the handoff. You go back door, where are you going? There's You're a running big right into yeah. the bigs, right? Yeah. And so I thought he did a um, – that the Clippers did a really good job of that. The difference with Sacramento is you can't do that. Sabonis – not going to shoot many threes, but he can certainly make the mid-range jumper. Like you're, you can't just drop back to the dotted circle on him, and everybody else can shoot the ball. I mean, Harrison Barnes, Keegan Murray, obviously Herter, and De'Aaron Fox's shooting has gotten a lot better. It's changed everything on them, and so that's another personnel thing. Now, the Warriors, if they would quit turning the ball over, could get by with it even with two non-shooters because – those guys are so good moving the ball and getting to second actions. And you have tough choices to make. Like, you know, if you're going to drop, you better not let that guy come to a handoff because then you got nobody up to help. And they will just continue to move and screen away from the ball. And nobody moves better without the ball than Steph Curry. And Clay Thompson and Jordan Poole aren't far behind. Um, but it's tough to play with two bigs who can't shoot the ball and still get as good of shots as they do. Now, part of it is, I mean, Curry can dribble it up and shoot it from 35, and it's got a good chance of going in. But um, it is interesting. But Sack is, to me, the most fun team to watch on the offensive end of the floor. And it's actually fun watching their games because the other team is always fun to watch when they play against Sack, too, because Sack refuses to guard anybody. I mean, just... I don't care what you run against Sacramento, you're going to get a great shot. I mean, just play with Kings on the jersey, you're going to get a great shot. They're going to guard absolutely no one, and they are absolutely confident, and for good reason, that they can score more than you do. Stan, it's been a pleasure. I'm sure you're tired of looking at my face, so I feel like we could do this for another hour, but uh, I will let you go. Now is the time, if you have anything that you want to promote any documentaries you've been in any books that you uh want to plug now the floor is yours oh thanks ben but no not really just you know hey everybody uh watch us on the nba on tnt in the playoffs and uh you know enjoy some good basketball i think the playoffs this year are just going to be phenomenal i think every western conference series is literally up for grabs and i've never said that before Maybe I'll be wrong on a 1-8 matchup in the play-in game, but I don't think so. I mean, that could be Denver against the Lakers or a fully healthy New Orleans team. You know, same with the 2-7. And then, you know, you're going to have either the Clippers or the Warriors playing Phoenix in the first round. I mean, those all those series are going to be great. I'm not so sure that'll be the case in the first round. In the East, though, I think the Cleveland-New York series will be really good. But then the second round series, particularly the Philly-Boston series, will just be a knockdown drag out. So great basketball to watch. Should watch every night. But if you're going to take a night off, make sure it's when my brother um, and ESPN and ABC <laughs> are on the TV and tune in on the TNT nights. <laughs> 
Uh, if you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We have our proprietary stats board that updates daily extra content. And of course, our monthly uh, Q&A, which is a lot of fun. And that's where people get to ask questions to guests like Stan that we pass on. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening all the way through. And of course, wherever you're listening from, especially with the playoffs around the corner, I do hope you're having a great day. Thank you.